0: We are going to be finishing the book of Habakkuk. We're going to look at Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. Um, I looked at breaking this up a little bit, but um, it just seemed best to tackle the whole chapter at once. I will do my best to, to stay with on our time. Um, because this whole chapter is Habakkuk's response uh, to the vision, through the, to the revelation that is given in chapter 2. Now, as we begin, I want to begin, I want to let you to, to uh, int- kind of introduce something to you. Now, a Christian song was published and produced in the late 80s, and it had a simple Uh, It was very simple at a catchy tune and a profound message. Our God is awesome. Most of us likely know the chorus of this, but, but not necessarily the whole song. This song was not flippant, but it was a song of God's power, wisdom, love, justice, and the gospel. Even if that title line is repeated 27 times through the course of the singing. This song contains such lines as, There's thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. And the Lord wasn't joking when he kicked him out of Eden. It wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. As well as lines as, He spoke into the darkness and created the light. Judgment and wrath he poured out on Sodom. Mercy and grace he gave us at the cross. The point of the song is, recognize, is to recognize that, if you haven't guessed the song title yet, our God is an awesome God. Habakkuk chapter 3 contains a remarkable statement of committed faith in the Lord, but it is also a psalm reflecting on the power, glory, and might of our awesome God. At the beginning of chapter 2, Habakkuk resolved to wait for the Lord's response to his second prayer, his second question or complaint, and see how he might respond. The Lord's first answer was so incredible that it spurred another complaint questioning God's plan. How can you use such an evil people to discipline your people? Yes, we're doing wrong, but these people are so much worse. What are you doing? So Habakkuk wondered what his response would be to the second reply of how God would judge Babylon. And not only did God's reply include those five woes of judgment against Babylon and those who would follow their example, but there was a reminder of his grace in verse 4, of his glory in verse 14, and of his rule in verse 20. These assurances from God remind Habakkuk and should remind us to place our faith in God no matter what is happening in the world around us, no matter what is happening in our lives. Chapter 3 is Habakkuk's response to this second reply from God. It is a, it is a response in, in prayer. It is it response in pondering or meditating on God's work and praising in faith? So let's get into this, and we're going to start right at the beginning, Habakkuk 3, verses 1 and 2, where we see his prayer, the opening in prayer. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Chapter 3 stands by itself from the rest of the book in some ways. Primarily, it doesn't seem to fit with the structure of the rest of the book. This is more of a psalm and doesn't seem to connect to the earlier chapters at first reading. This is such a break. There was dialogue between he and the Lord, but now we have this psalm starting with this prayer here. Some argue that this chapter was penned and added later, possibly by another man named Habakkuk or someone writing under his name. Part of this argument is strengthened and stems from the fact that chapter 3 is missing in its entirety, from a commentary on Habakkuk found within the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, that doesn't mean that this portion wasn't originally penned by the prophet, as uh, as uh, uh, and excuse me, wasn't originally penned by the prophet as part of the recording of this dialogue with and vision of the Lord. The Dead Sea Scrolls commentator could have left this chapter out because his purpose was better suited with chapters 1 and 2. Just because chapter 3 does isn't there doesn't mean it isn't canon. The Dead Sea Scrolls proved a lot of things. Doesn't necess- the absence of this doesn't necessarily mean it's not there. But chapter 2 does connect with the previous. It fits with the overall theme and the new style or structure of chapter 3 fits with the new subject verse one is the clear break saying here is something new here is the prayer of the prophet and it's a clear break just as the change indicated a shift in chapter two verse one where he says i'm going to stand i'm going to take my watch i will stand at my rampart and i will wait there was a break there was a shift and verse in chapter two is also a little bit more in prose as God is revealing and giving these woes of judgment. So chapter 3 fits in the overall theme and structure. The the the, the, the structure fits with the new subject. Chapter 3 is a psalm. It is a prayer, but it is a psalm. A psalm that petitions for mercy and a renewed work one that recalls past works of the Lord and ends in praise and full of faith. Now there's some indicators that we see that we recognize this as a psalm. Our first big clue is there in verse 1, which is actually the title of the psalm. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet on the Shigianoth. That is a title of the psalm. We see this, in many other psalms, a lot of times they're not marked as verse one, but there's generally something um, above verse one that is found in the manuscripts that says "A psalm of David, a Micdom of david the song of, uh, the, a song from the sons of korah that's part of the title that's all verse one is here. another big clue is the de- uh, is the direction that is included at the end of verse 19. Drop all the way down to the end of the verse. End of the chapter, the very last line has nothing to do with the psalm, its direction, to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Generally, this piece is found in the title of the psalms, uh, something like psalm, the title of Psalm 4 to be played on stringed instruments or, or on some other instrument. So we have clues that this is a psalm that the prophet wrote. Now this, this obscure phrase, according to the Shigianoth or on the Shigianoth, this is an obscure word and the only other biblical use of this is in the title of Psalm 7. That is it. it there's a variation in the spelling. It's rendered just a little differently, but it's the same word. This may be a musical or liturgical term as to the type of psalm or some musical direction as to, it seems to be related to, a verb that means to reel to and fro, giving direction for some sort of erratic and enthusiastic playing. It may just be a reference to an unknown instrument. But... It, it is an obscure word with only one other use. Uh, we tend to think of it as a, a mu- some sort of musical or liturgical term here. Now, verse 2 of Habakkuk 3 actually is the beginning of the psalm and of the prayer itself. He reports that he has heard God's purpose and plan to discipline Judah and to destroy Babylon, and this left him in Ah, it left him with the fear of God. What, what Habakkuk heard refers to the dialogue with the Lord back from chapters 1 and 2. And a little more specifically to chapter 1, verse 5. Where the Lord said to him, Look among the nations and watch, be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. Well, it was told to him and it was hard for him to believe. Now, verse 2 contains the only petitions of the whole prayer. The only petitions, the only requests Habakkuk makes in this psalm is found in verse 2. Verse 2 by itself is the prayer. The prophet asks God to work and that his works would happen quickly and yet he asks for mercy he asked that god's action the renewal or revival of his mighty works would happen quickly he was looking for prompt fulfillment of god's word this is happening let it happen quickly in the midst of the years let this happen quickly let's we, don't wait but secondly, he asks that God would remember to be merciful through his just wrath. He is coming to discipline Judah. He asks that he remembers mercy while he is just, while he is disciplined. Habakkuk agreed that Judah needed to be disciplined, but he prayed that God's love would be shown through his mercy. He interceded here for the kingdom as Moses did for the nation in Exodus 32 and Numbers 14. We may be discouraged or disappointed in the state of affairs and the church, our nation or our own spiritual lives, but we can and should to the Lord in prayer. Do a work. Renew your work. The rest of the prayer is a psalm, a, a hymn of praise. Habakkuk reflects on different events of the Lord's work in the nation's past and is confident that the Lord could still deliver his people from Babylon. And the Lord was merciful to the nation of Israel. The people would be preserved in Babylon and would return to the land. Now the next section is a major, is a big section, uh, and it is the major section of the whole piece. Verses 3 through 15. Now, we're not gonna, I'm not going to read through that whole section right here. We'll break it up a little bit. But here he is pondering He is pondering on the works of God. This psalm may be part of Habakkuk's vision from God, written written figuratively with lots of picturesque descriptions. We're going to break this up a little bit. We're going to first look at verses 3 through 7 and see God's arrival. Habakkuk 3, starting in verse 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Koran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, and his rays flashing from his hand, and there is power, and there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence, and fever followed his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered, the perpetual hills bowed, his ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian tremble." He is describing God's arrival here. He is using figurative language, reflecting on how God arrives on the scene. He is describing God's greatness and His might. The first part of verse 3, is seemingly a recount of God's coming to Israel at Mount Sinai. And just as he came down to them to establish the covenant, so he would come to rescue and deliver and to reaffirm the covenant. These references to the places of Canaan and Mount Quran suggest the visitation at Sinai is a reference to Edom. It is a region and a city of uh, of Edom, um, and it may have been an oasis area in the Arabian Desert. Eden was a nation kind of off to the south and east of of uh, of Judah and of Israel, and it tends to be over on that side. While as Mount Paran may be more specific is maybe a, maybe a very specific mount in the region of the Sinai Peninsula. It would be on the west side. In this wilderness area, uh, known as the Wilderness of Quran, is west of Judah. And both of these geographical references are to the south of Judah. He begins... Habakkuk again calls God the Holy One, as he did in verse 12 of chapter 1. This begins the revealing of God's glory and majesty that will run through the rest of the psalm. The Holy One comes. Verse 3 has a break point with the notation of Sila there in the middle of the verse. A number of translations put Selah off to the margin on the right-hand side. Some leave it in the middle. But we, rec- you might recognize that from regular occurrences in the book of Psalms. This is the first of three occurrences in this chapter. The next two are in the middle of verse 9, and the last is at the end of verse 13 we don't really know what how to translate sila sila is considered to be by most some sort of musical notation of direction these uh, it's used 3 times here uh, and other than these 3 times it's only used in the old testament its only old testament occurrences are found in the psalm Then it occurs 71 times in the psalm it's some sort of technical term, and seems to be related to a verb that means to elevate or to lift up. One source presents a, a few options as to its use, both here in Habakkuk and in the Psalms. He, uh, he postulates it may mean a pause, uh, one, to elevate to a higher key or to increase the volume, Two, to reflect on what has been sung and exalt the Lord in praise. Or three, to lift up certain instruments for something like a trumpet fanfare. Whatever the meaning, an obvious break was intended in the middle of Habakkuk 3, 3. I tend to look at Selah as a moment of pause to reflect on the truth that was expressed just before it which is kind of the second option in that list I read. So often I will read it, and when I read a psalm aloud, I will read it aloud and wait a second or two before continuing. You notice I did the same thing as I was reading this section just a moment ago. Verse 3 continues by expressing God's glory as he approaches. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His splendor or his glory covered the heavens. This seems to be sort uh, sort of an anticipation of the time his glory fills the earth. A reference back to uh, verse 14 of chapter 2. When the Lord came to Mount Sinai, it was in in what appeared to be dark clouds and with lightnings and thunderings. The heavens were covered by his glory and the earth was full of his praise. This may not be a reference to a response by mankind as praise, but to the reality of his fame. When he came to Sinai, Egypt certainly was aware of him by the time they made it to Sinai, a few of the other nations had heard of things. Next, God is described by brightness. His brightness was like light. The, and this image reminds us of the sunrise as its first, it first lights spill across the sky, tinting it. And then as the sun comes into full view, the light permeates over the land. The light is described as rays, or the King James reads horns. They have that they have their source in the hand of the Lord. Thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. The light radiating from God pictures his glory and yet veils his power. We often forget that the light and heat coming from the sun, that ball of fire, our tiny planet orbits. But any closer or further away, there would be no life on this planet. Too close and that ball of fire would consume the earth in mere moments. So God's glory hides, veils His power. His revelation is restrained, His revealing of Himself, His revelation is restrained as to not consume the witnesses. His revelation is restrained as to not consume the witnesses. The Lord told Moses, no man can look at me. You cannot see me. You look and in in, you stay in the cleft of the rock. I will cover your face and you will see the train of my glory. You will see the just the final passing. Why? It would have been too much. God's glory veils his power. Verse five takes us back to Egypt with a reference to plagues and the pestilence. Exodus seven through 12 record those plagues and pestilences that the Lord that, the, that revealed God's power and glory as the land was devastated and the firstborns died. These were not just punishment for Pharaoh's hardening of his heart. But to disprove the Egyptian gods. Exodus twelve twelve says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Psalm 7850, he made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death but gave their lives over to the plague. One author quipped, God is not a little old man upstairs who dotes on people with sweetness and light. He is all powerful as he is all loving. His grace and glory are coupled with might, with might and majesty. Often in the Old Testament, God's glory was revealed through his judgments, such as the plagues on on Egypt during the exodus. But in our present dispensation of the church, in our present age of the church, Jesus Christ is the revealer of the glory of God. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 6 of Habakkuk's vision of God approaching, uh, is one of God approaching and walking across the earth changes as God now stops and measures He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. He stops. He stands and measures the earth. He is preparing his work. Measuring is the first picture, is first a picture of ownership. I can do what I want with this. So I'm going to start, I'm going to measure it and see how I'm going to use it. But it's also an action preparing to work. What's he old saying? Measure twice, cut once. You measure before you start taking that action. It is as if he is estimating how much power would be required in executing his judgment. The Lord's mere look at the nations caused them to tremble, to start, to leap back in fear. And as these nations leap back, the mountains and hills of old scatter and crouch before him. When the Lord descended on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, the mountain shook at his presence. verse 7, he references Cushion and, and Midian. These are two nations that, that lie between Egypt and Canaan. The reference may be here that these, ver, that these two specifically, or as representing the whole region, that they typified all the little nations between Canaan and Canaan and uh, Egypt. It's also possible that the Cushion here is, is being referred to as a subgroup within Midian, as in Judah is a tribe of Israel. Cushion may be a subgroup within Midian. Either way, the nations that witnessed the Exodus and heard the report of the Lord's work at the Red Sea became afraid and distressed. Joshua records that the nations were afraid of God's mighty acts on behalf of the nation of Israel. Joshua 2, verse 9, and chapter 5, verse 1. The references to the tents and curtains seem to emphasize their precarious states. If the mountains scattered before the Lord, if the hills and the everlasting mountains bowed before the Lord, what about those living in tents? The scene shifts from focusing on God's awesome appearance to his actions. As God led the nation from Egypt to Sinai, then marched into Canaan to claim their inheritance. And here we see in verses 8 through 15, we see God's actions. God's actions. First, we're going to look at verses 8 to 12. Oh Lord, you are, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went, at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. This section opens with some poetic rhetorical questions. Was God's wrath against the rivers and the sea? Was God angry with nature? God had struck the Nile, turning it to blood. He had split the Red Sea and then split the Jordan River, allowing Israel to pass through without hindrance. Yet the Egyptian chariots were crushed and drowned by the sea. The Lord is presented here as a victorious warrior whose chariots bring salvation. The first part of verse 9 pictures God readying his weapons for war. Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. That second line there of verse 9 is actually very obscure. The New King James has a very um, good literal translation. There's this idea of solemn oaths spoken over the arrows. Um, many of the translations bring something very similar to effect there but he's readying his weapons of war your bow was made quite ready another says you you unsheathed your bow you've pulled it from its storage, out of its out of its container you made your arrows ready you've spoken sw- solemn things over them they're ready to be used and then we have the second Sila, the second call to reflect and meditate on what had just happened, and what had just been spoken. God's power is seen in nature, among the nations, and against his enemies by his actions. Verse 10 it seems to be nature's reaction to God's power. It, it's almost, part of it is almost a reaction in praise. But there is this massive upheaval in nature. The rivers split the earth. The mountains writhe in pain. The mountains saw you and trembled. The word "trembled" there uh, in in the ESV is trans is uh, translated "writhe," and that's a little bit more accurate. The idea is actually actually of writhing in. pain Pains, as in the pangs of labor. But the mountains writhe in pains. They tremble at the sight of the Lord. Raging floods sweep past. Great waters here are personified as giving their voice and lifting their hands. Nature gives witness to the greatness of God's power. When the sky was starless in the void of the night, he spoke into the darkness and created the light. Nature gives witness to the greatness of God's power. Verse 11 now turns to the sun and moon for witness of God's power, and it causes us to think of the great of the famous miracle found in Joshua 10 when the sun and moon stood still and prolonged the day that afforded Joshua and the army of the nation a complete victory over the five kings of the Amorites, including the king of Jerusalem. But not only the reference to the sun and the moon, but the references in the rest of this verse, uh, at the light of your arrows they went, at the shining of your your glittering arrows, spear. These references to God's arrows and spears I think might refer to the hailstones that God sent that God sent on the fleeing Amorite forces. Joshua ten eleven records that those hailstones killed more of those fleeing of that of those fleeing soldiers than were killed by any Israelite by the sword. That day. Verse 12 here describes God leading his army, Israel conquering Canaan as a farmer threshing grain from a field, and Israel took the land. Verses 13 through 15. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters." Verses 13 to 15 is unclear and it refers it may refer to some battle in the past, but it's possible that Habakkuk was also looking to the future and seeing the destruction of Babylon. Either way, God's wrath is seen here as against wickedness. God crushes his enemies that oppose his own, and his will. The references to the anointed uh, is widely recognized as referring to the nation of Israel. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, and priests were anointed for their office. But Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests mediating between God and the rest of the nations, Exodus 19, verses 5 to 8. God had acted to deliver the people in the past, first by redeeming them through the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, through a number of battles in the wilderness, in conquering Canaan, and in the multiple accounts of the judges. And Habakkuk is confident that God will act for the deliverance, the salvation of his people again. One resource argues that the anointed reference here is actually a reference to the anointed one, the coming Messiah. He says that salvation was for God's people, but it was also for the anointed one. The term probably refers to the coming Messiah. Psalm 2.2 2 and Daniel 9.26. By preserving the people of Israel, delivering them from Egypt and then later from Babylonian captivity, God maintained the line for the Messiah. And while of the resources I checked, I only found one that made that connection. It does make a little bit of sense. But most understand that this anointed is a reference to God's to the chosen people. At this point, to Israel, as is the reference there. But that idea of of salvation even for the anointed one, that by preserving the people of Israel, the line for the Messiah is still safe. And there make and there makes some sense there. If we go back through and you read Genesis. And you start looking at things. We have the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3. But then we have the promise given through Abraham. And then when Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt, Abraham tells a lie, and the line is now in danger. But God acts and keeps Sarah safe, keeps Sarah from becoming um, part of the harem for Abimelech, and the line is safe. The line is in danger. With again, with Hag- uh, when when Sarah doesn't seem to be getting pregnant, there's danger. There's things are going on. There's lo- There's there's uh, Isaac is not married yet. The line is in danger. Jacob is in danger. The line continues to be in danger, and God continues to keep preserving the patriarchs. So there is some, I think there is some backing to that idea there. Before moving on, verse 13 ends with the final pause for reflection with Selah. Verse 14 describes how the Lord will crush the house of wickedness, attacking these warriors with their own arrows or spears. These warriors that came quick and terrible, like a whirlwind, that rejoice over devouring the helpless. You can see uh, Babylon there in some of the previous references, especially back to to chapter two. So there may be some looking forward to seeing how God would deliver Babylon or deliver Judah from Babylon. Verse fifteen seems to be referring again to the Lord as the victorious warrior, and may be returned in thinking to the victory over Egypt at the Red Sea. Verses 3-15 describe the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God that reveals himself and his glory throughout creation and history. He is the living God. He is the true God that makes the lifeless idols of the nations look ridiculous. He is the God of power, the God of creation that controls the land and the sea, the heavens and earth. He is therefore the God of victory that leads his people to triumph and rest. And then in verses 16 through 19, we see the prophet praise. Praise. When I heard, my body trembled, my lips trembled. Quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high heels. The chief musician with stringed instruments. Verses 16 through 19, we see the praise. Having experienced God's power throughout this vision, Habakkuk is left... In a sense of awe. Our God is an awesome God. He describes his feelings he is left with after encountering this vision of the Lord in battle array. His heart was pounding, his legs trembled, his lips quivered. He felt as though his bones were rotting and decaying within him. Yet in this state He finds confidence and hope. Habakkuk is about to make a great confession of faith. He saw the coming judgment for Judah, the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, the devastation of the land and the people. He saw the coming judgment on those that would be the tool of judgment against Judah. All the destruction frightened him. But instead of listening to his fears, instead of focusing on the injustice and wickedness around him, he looked up in faith to God. And he saw the Lord. He decided to wait patiently for the Lord. He knew that judgment was coming, and this meant death and destruction for the people of Judah. But he also knew that God would deal justly, just as decisively, with the Babylonians. Habakkuk reviewed Israel's history and the mighty acts of power that the Lord did to deliver his people. And he would wait for the day when God would renew, verse 2, when he would renew those deeds and hope... To see them. Habakkuk recognized the truth that he needed to wait for the Lord. Isaiah 28, 16 says, Whoever believes will not be in haste. We cannot run ahead of the Lord's timing. We only bring trouble on ourselves when we do this. Abraham learned this by trying to have an heir through Hagar instead of waiting for the promised heir through Sarah, Genesis 16. And Moses learned when he tried to deliver Israel from Egypt by himself, Exodus 2. Habakkuk's faith in the Lord produced real joy. Not a false sense of joy from his surrounding circumstances, but he learned to rest in the Lord and his provision. Habakkuk states that the economic ruin that would come from Babylon's attacks would not shake his faith. The fig trees would not be producing, no grapes from the vineyards, no olives from the groves of olive trees, no food to be harvested from the wheat or barley fields, the livestock gone, no sheep or goats, no cattle or oxen, all or most of it gone. Israel would be in ruin, but that would not stop Habakkuk from praising the Lord that would not stop Habakkuk from rejoicing in the God of salvation, the living and true God. Habakkuk learned that the Lord is his true strength, that when he felt like falling, the Lord secures his footing. Habakkuk's confession of faith in the Lord reminds us of Paul's words in First Thessalonians five. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's one thing to say and another to live it. But Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail were examples. Acts 16, verses 19-34. If... When we are fully resting on the Lord, despite our circumstances, God can and does give us songs in the nights. Psalms, Psalms 42, 8, 77, 6, and Job 35, 10. An 18th century hymn by William Cope Cooper paraphrases what Habakkuk penned here. Though vine nor fig tree, neither their wanted fruit shall bear. Though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. Yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Habakkuk is a challenge to live by faith. We can and will have doubts questions and fears, but through faith we can face them honestly and humbly go to the Lord in prayer and in study of his word. There we should wait for the word to teach us, and when it does, we worship the Lord no matter what we see or feel. Warren Wearsby said, God doesn't always change the circumstances, but He can change us to meet the circumstances. That's what it means to live by faith. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder that we had here the truths of who you are your mighty actions, the deeds that you have done, oh Lord, we rest not just in the the actions of you moving mountains, of you splitting seas, but we rest in the confidence that your Son came to this earth. Lived a perfect life as a human. Died on the cross for our sins. And was, and was resurrected, was raised to life the third day. We rest in those truths. We rest in the mighty acts that you have performed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that as believers, we are always secure and safe in your hands. Help us to live by faith. Help us to rest in your truths and in you, in your power. For you are the glorious, mighty You are the creator of the universe. You are the God of our salvation. Help us to rest in you. Help us to remember that Christ is our hope, not only in this life, for the death of this life, but for eternity. Pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.